Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Oh yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. We're doing it again. And oh gang, oh gang, we we picked a fine. We picked. A, I was worried last week when this Ooh. all started breaking. Uh, uh, yeah. After we had recorded, I was like, oh, no, this will be over before we record again, and we won't have a chance to, <laughs> to highlight how stupid it is. And no, silly It's me. never over. It's I, never over. I forget how dumb the Empire is sometimes, and, and yeah. here we are. Um, <sighs> yeah, so... As is tradition, this is Bark's Madness Pod. We read books. We will be reading the. We will be starting chapter fourteen of Black Reconstruction uh, this yeah. week, which will be fun. Yeah. Uh, the Counter Revolution of Property. I'm sure that won't be depressing as fuck in any meaningful way. Um, <laughs> but def- speaking of Counter Revolution, but speaking ah! of the Counter Revolution, uh, David, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a color revolution uh, uh, a popping off down yes. down down old Cuba way. Um, yes and what and, and i i want to start before I, I i let you have it um it's just so very confusing to me because i kind of assumed and have for a long time now that cuba was the one point that was unassailable that everyone like, yeah in- like it being close and so i uh, like you can't it's too hard to hide the truth because it's too close and it's too obvious because it's been yeah. it, all the undocumented evidence all the assassinations all the counter all the all the counter revolution assassination we, attempts they didn't uh, assassination get attempts yes yes well, they never got fidel god bless mm, they could world not get Trump. fidel um <laughs> but all the all the insurgencies that they funded the 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 bay of pigs well, the on the top embargo, of that the entire the entire narrative was the Castros, the Castros, the Castros, the Castros. And they're still well, saying the Castros. There's no Castro in power. There is no Castro that is president or head of the party. None. Like, I even get like, I like there are still people I'm pretty sure that think Fidel is still in charge. I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure an enormous amount do. Yeah, because people are just dumb, which shocks me because, again, I mean, it doesn't shock me that the general public is dumb and, and un- unworldly. You know, um, I mean, people people talk about Iran and and <laughs> just the thought of them knowing what who the hell you know Khamenei is is just yeah no, um, but uh, but nonetheless, you would think the general public would know that neither Fidel or Raúl are in power right now, right? The general public would know who Diaz Canal is. I would think that. I would assume that, and because Cuba is so close, and because Cuba has a longer life expectancy than the United States, in spite of the blockade, and because Cuba is so famous for sending out its doctors, and of course, there was all this, uh, you know, doctor, doctor diplomacy, it's a diplomacy trap kind of bullshit that was so easy to see through during COVID, and because Cuba has developed five different vaccines when no other country in the world has more than three right that people would see through this shit in fact it got to the point where one of the things you could say is because people believe the 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 opposite of this is the dprk right people believe crazy shit about the dprk like the way anything you could say anything about the dprk and people would believe you i mean literally anything 
you could just take one of those History Channel ancient aliens Nazi specials and just replace aliens with this is what they think in the DPRK and and you can put anyone in there. And like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, people believe any fucking thing about the DPRK. People will be like, yeah, so cookies are illegal and if you don't lick the ground every three steps, they shoot you in the street or something. Exactly. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Oh, but, yeah. And so it gets to the point where you could say like, well, if you understand Cuba's good and they have basically the same political structure you know i mean the dprk has a little bit uh bigger military, military. because they, they have to be defensively and instead of it running through where parties don't matter so there is one party but they don't matter there's multiple parties um in the supreme people's assembly in korea but other than that it's it's the same it's the exact same you know economic and political structure right and so you could be like, okay, that, you know, you can't support one and, and denounce the other. And you thought that was, that was the thing because Cuba was so obviously true. And then one little bit of, of propaganda comes out. And again, we know propaganda works and we know propaganda oh, yeah. has been after Cuba for years. Right. So I'm not saying like this is just one thing. And then, but you would think for a current mounting campaign, like, how they have to do so many things with China. You know, they have to do Hong Kong, and then it took years to build up the Xinjiang uh, narrative of the Uyghur genocide, you know, that was starting, like, soft in, in places, you know, a couple years ago before it hit mainstream, and and all that, you know, they had to build up the surveillance state stuff. You would think they'd have to do something like that. It'd have to take some momentum to build up propaganda against uh, Cuba, and it didn't. It didn't take anything. It, it took, took one. No- it took, it took literally one very, nothing. very, very tiny protest. <laughs> Which is just, it's just so, and again, I'm just so disheartened um, mm-hmm. because there are, there are so many people on the ostensible left that are trying to nuance the fuck out of this in ways that just, yeah. they are bending over backwards to do to do the U.S.'s work for them. They are yeah, bending and again, over I mean, Cuba, Cuba is the place that, you know, there there are, again, mo- most anarchists are, are comrades and actually do stand with actual existing socialism. This is the the black flag social democrats, the people that like to call themselves anarchists in the vein of, like, say, Noam Chomsky, but they're really they're really just edgy social democrats that, that fucking love, you know, social imperialism more than the SPD in Germany did. They just... Uh, Adore it. They want U.S. hegemony thin and thin, or thick and thin. But they they, they want to call themselves anarchists, right? When I say this, but there's the really disingenuous ones, and then there was a group of people from that huddle, right? From the from the the, the quote unquote online left, from the you know the kind of the the bread tuber type, where you have the martyr syndrome, and you have the you know they can brand socialist or not brand socialist or be socialist or not be you know it as long as they're with the US empire they're stood by and if they're against it they're you know it it doesn't matter right iran isn't socialist so they get attacked china is socialist so they get attacked because you know they're they're against the empire but of course you know palestine can be can be the martyr and the rojava um, imperialist project is with the empire so they jump on it right and the one exception to that for for most of them again not not all of them not every black flag soaked down there's a really disingenuous one but most of them was cuba right because it was just it's too obvious too obviously democratic too obviously peaceful and too obviously successful right there on america's doorstep in spite of it all and they just it turned I mean, it, like in a second they were all all it, both it sides. So no, we're 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 for the we're against the embargo, but we're we're definitely against this totalitarian regime. It, it's a totalitarian yeah. regime now. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the America turned on the bug zapper and they went right to the light at, at every fucking time, you know? And it's, it, it was just, it's so, so ridiculous. So here's, here's what is happening for people that, that somehow have gotten through this without knowing. Because they live is, under a rock and have not used Twitter I, or the internet in the last week and a half. I, I understand, but we do these current events for a reason. Information is messy out there. Okay. So, basically, Cuba has, I mean, they've been going through it for a long time, and and they're going for, through it a little more now because COVID's been hitting them pretty darn hard. They've actually developed five different vaccines, yeah. right? And Cuba's been exporting doctors at their own risk, you know, and when I say exporting, these are voluntary, right? Yeah. They're voluntary doctors. And they've been doing that at the doctor's risk since the beginning of COVID, just to, to treat people, you know. Um, and of course, you know, as vaccines go out there, it, it's, it's an even bigger thing. I mean, that's one of the hits that Venezuela took, um, when, uh, when they were uh, seeing unrest was, you know, seeing doctors driven out. It's one of the things that, that really hurt Bolivia when the coup government was in is they basically kicked out the Cuban doctors and that really hurt people. You know, Cuba sends doctors all the time. They send them as humanitarian aid. They send them after wars and disasters. They send them to, you know, allies that they show solidarity with. They, they just, you know, they famously send them when it's needed. I mean, the, the last epidemic before this COVID pandemic was the Ebola epidemic. You remember in West yeah. Africa, right? Yeah. The U.S. sent their military like they were going to shoot Ebola. Like that did any fucking thing. Cuba sent doctors. Cuba was one of the major reasons that got stomped out. Right. Cuba is. I, I really hate that this this white supremacist idea of the like shining beacon on the hill. Like, you know, imperialists love that. Right. But if there's a shining beacon on the hill, the entire hill, the entire shining beacon is the third world's anyone resisting imperialism. And Cuba is the brightest of those lights, if anyone is, right? I mean, it's it, it, incredible example 60, of socialism. And not including okay. six, they're doing all of this while they've been completely blockaded mm-hmm. and embargoed and threatened from the world's biggest superpower for over 60 years. Yeah, and so they're, they're sanctioned hard, and the reason we actually get to hear the, the term embargo instead of just sanction about Cuba is the embargo's been on before sanctions existed. Sanctions kind of came about under uh, Nixon. Um, mm-hmm. which was a foreign policy thing because the, the, the U.S. dollar became the standard, and so they started being able to blockade people uh, by restricting the dollar, saying, like, if you trade with this person, you can't do any trading on the dollar with anyone, and so you're screwed, right? But it's exempt from food and exempt from medical care, except that you exchange with them at all, right? Like fuel, maybe, to you know do the trading, go get the food and distribute the medical care. Um, then you get hit. But also on top of that, then, you know, these medical companies, right? You get U.S. companies that are like, oh, we'll trade with you. Um, but, you know, do you want to trade with, like, Cuba and sell a couple hundred thousand units? Or do you want to trade with us and sell a couple million? Because we're not going to do it if you do anything with Cuba. And and so, you know, people are, of course, afraid to do it with Cuba. And, and the sanctions, you know, go on. But it started as an embargo. And then it went on to sanctions. And, and Cubans have always called it what it really is, uh, is a blockade. You know, at the at the end of the day, it it's a seizure, right? They're, they're seizing... Um, uh, or I'm sorry, it's a siege, right? It, they're they're seizing the the I, the entire country, right? Through through blockade. 
Um, and that's important too. You know, I mean, blockades have been a thing for a long time. That's a big part of, you know, England being able to shoot up as the main colonial point is, is, you know, they, they took over the choke points, right? Yeah. That killed the, the, there's a reason <laughs> colonialism largely started with the East India Trading Company because the Indian Sea was the old trade routes, yep. right? Long before the Atlantic Sea was. And, and, England took over the choke points and kind of blockaded people. You know, blockades are a huge part of imperialism. And so this blockade's been on, and it's really hurt them. And so what Cuba has is, is you know, of course, when they lost the big trading partner of the USSR, they went through, um, you know, food shortage in the 90s. They're actually more food secure uh, than, you know, most struggling countries out there now. They're actually doing they're, – they're, they're, there's shortages of food and shortages of medicine, and yet nobody's starving, right? Just like yeah. no one is homeless. You know, the the – in spite of being out of it, they're still taking care of people. But there are shortages of food. It's not going well there because a lot of the ways to get around these sanctions is they raise funds through tourism. And yep. pandemics kind of kill tourism, right? And so Cuba's been hit especially hard from the pandemic. And so they have these vaccines, and they can send them around the world. They have these doctors to distribute them, more doctors per person, incredible medical care. They can send people all around the world. In spite of all that, they don't have the needles to distribute the vaccine. The fact that they developed all these vaccines under these siege conditions is once again just an example of how incredible uh, Cuba can accomplish anything they need. They always do it. They always come through for their people. And so in these conditions, you know, these are the kind of things that, that the the uh, sanctions or embargo or blockade or whatever you want to call it are supposed to stir up, right? They're supposed to stir up the unrest. They're supposed to make people desperate and fight back and break away from their government desperation. At least we'll get something, right? But the people in Cuba believe in the revolution. Uh, in fact, you know, Cuba's so incredibly democratic that they just created another and voted on a new constitution just in 2019. They had a 90% turnout of the 11 million people there. And I think the population was like 10 and a half million at the time. They had over 9 million people vote and over 8 million of them voted for the constitution. Only 1 million against, right? Which is um, important, which, and this is, this is a point that I, I think gets hammered appropriately, but cannot be hammered enough. Yeah. Nothing is a homogenous blob. To no. say that there is to say that there is universal approval in Cuba of everything the government does would be absolutely utopian and silly. It would be yeah. it would be there's it would be there silly. There never is. There never is. Yeah. And so, you know, of course some protests will happen. And some of these probably the majority of these protesters were people in desperation, but they don't want the government overthrown, right? They want the government to recognize their struggle and to to do something about it, to adjust. They feel like the incredibly democratic processes in Cuba are not moving fast enough for their desperation. And of course the US has been widely funding regime change operations in Cuba for God knows 60 years, right? I yep. mean, they, every, everything, they pour a couple million dollars into this every year. Not, right? not, this sun- is not that. And again, just, just to point it out, not mm-hmm. conspiracy, not, not hypothesizing. No, this is docu- they, they pass acts demonstrable in fact. To, to budget this. Yeah. They, they, they pass acts to Congress to budget this. And so it'll be like, you know, eight million for regime change in Cuba. Um, for four years and the four years later to be 10 million for, for five years. And it, it's about 2 million, you know, every year, right? Some years it's two and a half, some years it's 800,000, but it, they, they, they do it in like little blocks of a few years and they approve it over and over and over again. Um, and so again, that's, that's not conspiratorial. In fact, even tying that to the U.S. admitted, that's, that's a nice thing that's gotten buried is the U.S. It came out that the U.S. kind of admitted Trained. involvement 
in in training in the the assassination of Moise, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, okay, yeah, you know, I mean, anyone who's anti-imperialist could see that coming, but that's still important confirmation, especially to come out so quickly. But it gets buried in this Cuba attention, and of course, Haiti. Speaking of, has seen months of dozens of protesters killed while millions of people are in the street in in desperation in a political protest against the government not just you know a few hundred people because they're desperate and want attention this is while colombia is seeing millions of people protesting against the government and on a general strike and this is months after the largest general strike in in history in india wasn't very well covered and in colombia there's dozens of protesters that that are dying right no coverage. None. None. Right. Uh, Moise gets assassinated. That's huge news. Very, very light coverage. U.S. admits to doing it. That's huge news. Very, very light coverage. Buried in the Cuba news. Um, and then what's actually happening in Cuba again, you know, it, there are some people that are U.S. agents and they're going to be the ones mostly organizing these protests. They're paid to organize it mm-hmm. and they're trying to make it political. There's also some people that, that, do live there and there's a few that are just flat out against the government and they're joining the protest to make it anti-protest to make it anti-government and then there's people like I said mostly that are just desperate and just trying to raise attention but they don't they're not against the government they're pro-government they just want to raise attention to the issue right and this all collects to like maybe 300 people i mean not even a huge protest and yeah, I, think, I think the most me- generous I saw was like 500 people or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you could look at the, the, the videos of it, and you can probably just about count in little bunches and get up to 200. And you can say, okay, there's probably more than I can count. I can't see every sight line, whatever. So, yeah, three to 500 people, this this little protest. It's, it's nothing, nothing, right? You know, I mean, millions of people came out to protest for Black Lives Matter and got brutalized. And, of course, that had to take all the attention in this country because it just did. And what did that turn into? It turned into a George Floyd named bill to raise police funds, even though the calling card was defund the police. This is not a government that listens to people. And, of course, because of that, you know, presidents come out and they have the Secret Service surrounding them, right? I mean, remember when Trump cleared out Black Lives Matter protesters for a photo op mm-hmm. in D.C.? And uh, and meanwhile, for this, D.S. Canal immediately said, he said, I believe, you know, most of these protesters uh, are genuine. I believe they're truly raising an issue. I believe some of these are U.S. compradors. We will stand with the people. And they don't have these, like, riot cops who are going to come out and tear gas you. They just don't have them. They flat out but, do but not David, have them. But, David, they're shooting protesters in the street. Yeah, no, they don't have they don't have the cops to do that. They don't. And so he called on the people to go to the street. And within hours, within hours of the breakout of protesters, right, it was the same night. There was like a million people marching in Havana to, I mean, mostly he said to keep the streets safe. And Diaz Canal was just marching in the middle of them. No bodyguards. I mean, do you ever see the U.S. president just walk out with no. with people and just march in solidarity with the United States with no, no bodyguards whatsoever? You can't do that here because there's not the same level of support. You're not such an obvious leader for the good of the people. And you're not a leader that no one would shoot because what would replace you is this, the will of the people. You're just representing the will of the people, right? People are so... It's not just that they're divided here, right? It's that the government doesn't... They're divided because the government doesn't serve the people at all. And so they're on divided either side, on, on any, There is no... Any there side. is no group of the people that is represented. There is there is corporate yeah. interest and... and mm-hmm and wealthy interest and that's about it and when you go among the people those interests yeah. don't tend to carry much weight 
Yeah, no. And so, I mean, the purpose of the two-party government here is so that you're only opposed to half the government at any given time. That's the purpose of it. That's what it does. They don't have to do that bullshit in Cuba, right? Yep. And so Diaz-Canal is out marching with the protesters that day. And it was, and there was no coverage of the, the massive counter protest. And of course, then, you know, you have diaspora and anywhere diaspora is going to be, you should, you should listen to the totality of people, um, for a country. Listen to the people in that country because they're most deeply affected first. But obviously diaspora do matter. And you should notice that's a totality of people. So you say there's 13.3 million Cubans in the world, right? 11.3 in the country. That's a majority to be listening to anyway. And they overwhelmingly support the government. And then, and then you have 2 million uh, abroad, 1.3 million in the United States, 1.2 million of those in Miami. Uh, and again, not every single Miami Cuban is, is some gusano, you know, right? I mean, some of them are, are black and brown people. Some of them are fully supportive of the government. Some of them are, are there just, you know, living their lives and sending some of the medicines to the blockade, uh, the U.S. prevents back to Cuba. You know, again, US, uh, Cuba has better medical care and a better life expectancy than us in spite of the blockade. They have vaccines for stage four lung cancer. They have five vaccines for COVID, but they can't get things like insulin, right? And so, you know, family members, relatives will often send that kind of thing back. And so not every Miami Cuban, and you shouldn't, again, assume that group's any more homogenous, exactly. is, is against the government. But there's an enormous chunk of that that population that are are largely overwhelmingly white, largely overwhelmingly wealthy, if not formerly wealthy in Cuba, definitely wealthy now, uh, that are very mad about the white supremacist capitalist system being gone, where they made buku on sugar plantations or sh- or businesses that worked in that system, right? Yep. And what's happening is the U.S. Media is mostly covering those protests in Florida. They pointed to the one little 300 person protest in Cuba. Look, there's a protest in Cuba. And then they just completely made up shit. No evidence, no photos whatsoever about police shooting protesters. And again, they weren't covering that happening in Haiti. They weren't covering that happening in Colombia. They, they, (laughs) the police brutality in the United States, like anyone has any room to talk in the United fucking States about police brutality. Uh, but hypocrisy aside, right? Because the, the point isn't hypocrisy. It's a lie and they know it's a lie and they don't give a shit, right? Yeah. Um, it's that it, it's not even a lie because it's exaggerated or hypocritical or a very small, you know, thing there that's just part of society functioning. It doesn't exist at all. There was none of it. They didn't even come up with, a, there wasn't even a bullshit video of like a protester, you know, instigating violence and, and a couple of cops, you know, beating them back or holding them down or something like that. Like you saw in the Hong Kong protest because someone like came in and started like whacking the shit out of cops with an umbrella or something. This, there was none of that. That didn't even happen. They just said it. They just tried to breathe it to existence. Well, don't, then, don't get it twisted. They also they also have done a good job of showing videos of protests that absolutely are happening demonstrably in other places that aren't Cuba. Yeah, and then the biggest of those are, of course, in Miami. And there was a big thing. Miami just or Florida just made protests illegal, right? Yeah, of no, more than they seven didn't make people. them illegal. They just said you can get run down with a car if you're protesting. Yes, yes, but they also I thought it was there was also no gathering of more than seven people in addition to that. Oh, I have no and, idea. I don't pay attention to And so to what happens in a state where you can uh, commit a very, very intentional manslaughter with the car legally if somebody dares protest on a street and and you can't gather in groups of more than seven, what happens? Oh, 
the police escort you and block uh, a a you know um, highway for you, and then it just makes the news of look at this impressive protest of yeah. that blocked the highway. That that means you need to worry about the Cuban people. That means that means it really is bad because they they blocked the highway. I mean, look at them surrounded by the cop cars, forming a little line with these these signs about how Biden needs to to annihilate Cuba or whatever. You had the fucking mayor of Miami saying we should bomb Cuba. I mean that is that is a call for death. Um yeah. and this is all over, you know, the fact that that they can't get needles and they can't get a, as much food because tourism is down and they're struggling with COVID and that's being spun completely disingenuously. It is a giant heap of crap. I mean and and it sucks because you look at them even even when you look through this crisis at their food security, at their uh literacy rate at their infant mortality, at their life expectancy. They're still beating the United States. Our life expectancy is plummeting in the United States. It's dropping. It's not going up. Yeah. It's going down. And Cuba was already ahead of ours, and theirs is not plummeting in spite of this crisis. No one is going without food. But they are struggling. Of course they're struggling. And that is being spun in ridiculous fashion in the effort of regime change. And the only way to, to the only thing Cubans want is the end of the blockade. That's all they need. That's what we need to support. Yeah. And that's that's really at the end of this I think that's the biggest takeaway is that this should be this should be the easy one, gang. This should be the yeah the, of all the ones that you want to have nuance and that you want to try and and eh, and wivel on and this, if Cuba isn't enough for you. I I I don't know what is. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, there are some orgs that we don't expect to take very good anti-imperialist stands at this point. You know, maybe some members in there have it, and most members don't, and then the official org line is terrible. And those orgs are taking good stands, right? If they can, god damn, you better. Yeah. I mean, it's... There's no it's, nuance. There's no nuance to, to their starving, right? I mean, you know, this, this is... It, it's in so many debates, Right. There's so many debates where, like, maybe underlying, you know, you can actually have nuance, but you probably don't know enough about the subject to really talk about nuance. But there's a clear, easy answer for you, right? Even if Cuba was terrible, this is not, this is, the only time the U.S. has ever been good is when war was declared on them, and when it was before the U.S. was a hegemon, and half of those two times, the U.S. was fighting itself, and the other half, most of the fighting was done by communists, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, they, there's there's a pretty good chance that if the U.S. is just straight up with a purely Western-backed initiative, you know, saying they do something, you should probably just be cheering for revolutionary defeatism, even if Cuba wasn't this great place. And then we talked about how great Cuba is, and of course, all of these things consistently, you know, you've seen this since, I mean, probably not in person seen this, but you look at history and have been through it from the Iraq War and, and things like that. This is something you've seen in the United States since the Spanish-American War. They build all of this shit on lies. And that is uh, as good a summation as we have for now. That being said, in the coming weeks... Uh, there may be uh, some further development on this. There may be some more detail coming. Um, yes. 
there there will definitely be probably an episode uh, of Dumb and Awful that either we will guest on or someone much smarter and much more in touch with the community will guest on one way or another that will deep dive into this topic. And if you want more information just on the, uh, the origin of color revolutions themselves, I would highly encourage you to go back if you haven't already heard them and listen to the two-part episode that David did um, that I was a, I was just a, a passenger on uh, yes. on color revolutions in general, uh, specifically yes, the that one was, that, that took place in Yugoslavia. Yeah, and that was that was it was I bad with memory and notes, and that was the best <laughs> my brain could organize for two episodes to to kind of use Yugoslavia because of what Oatpour is and, and how Oatpour is formed in Canvas, and now of course a lot of this jumps out of Canvas and the Oslo Freedom Forum, um, but. Oh, I forgot to mention that, too. Speaking of, of patterns, you always see these patterns. You even saw the SOS Cuba hashtags after the SOS Venezuela shit and the SOS Nicaragua shit. That's like the new, it might as well be an American flag, which, of course, we'll also see these the, the protests. That's a dead giveaway for a color revolution. You might as well be waving an American flag when you do an SOS country hashtag. Yeah. Um, that That's a pretty dead giveaway for color rev shit. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was something where, you know, I was just using Oatpour as an example. There were color revs before that, you know, there was the fall of, of, of many Eastern Bloc countries, um, before that in color revolutions. There's been color revolutions since then, but that seemed to be the good turning point in understanding what a color revolution is and refining what the U.S. did. Plus, it's just a subject people needed to know more about, which is why the color rev part of it, the second Yugoslav war kind of took until the second episode to do, but, that is a good a good couple episodes to listen to. Also, uh, over on YouTube, I know uh, Luna Oi, a, a, a Vietnamese uh, communist, has uh, done a uh, good little summary of not only a color rev attempt in Vietnam in one episode, but a good little three-minute three kind of checklist of, like, these are the common things you see in a color revolution. If you see this, probably a color revolution. And, and so check that out as well. Absolutely. That being said, it is almost exactly the 30-minute mark, which means we are going to dive into this week's readings uh, and probably go a little long this week just to make sure we get mm. enough uh, enough content in for you that, that is not current events. Um, yes. That being said, we are starting on page 580, chapter 14, The Counter-Revolution of Property. How after the war, triumphant industry in the North, coupled with privilege and monopoly, led an orgy of theft that engulfed the nation and was the natural child of war. And how revolt against this anarchy became reaction against democracy, North and South, and delivered the land into the hands of an organized monarchy of finance while it overthrew the attempt at a dictatorship of labor in the South. Again, everybody, dust off your copies of imperialism. They're about to be useful again. Yes, yes. And also, oh my God, we talked about how it's going to be a weird world to, to remember that we read other things before this book. Can you imagine a world where the subtitles of chapters aren't a paragraph? I just, I can't. <laughs> I won't know what to do with myself when it's just chapter and then we start. Like, but, but where's your right. paragraph? Where's the poem at the end of your chapter? <laughs> The abolition democracy of the North had been willing to try real democracy in the South because they believed in the capabilities of the Negro race, and also because they had passed through war, oligarchy, and the almost unbridled power of Andrew Johnson. Relatively few of them believed in the mass of Negroes any more than they believed in the mass of whites, but they expected that with education, economic opportunity, and the protection of the ballot, there would arise the intelligent and thrifty Negro to take his part in the community, while the mass would make average labor. Perhaps they did not expect the proportion of thrift and intelligence to equal that of the whites, but they knew certain possibilities from experience and acquaintance. 
The machinery they were compelled to set up with the cooperation of Northern Industry was a dictatorship of far broader possibilities than the North had at first contemplated. It put such power in the hands of Southern labor that with intelligent and unselfish leadership and a clarifying ideal, it could have rebuilt the economic foundations of Southern society, confiscated and redistributed wealth, and built a real democracy of industry for the masses of men. Oh, Du Bois, you're speaking my language. (laughs) When the South realized this, they emitted an exceeding great cry, which was the reaction of property being despoiled of its legal basis of being. This bitter complaint was all the more plausible because Southern labor lacked sufficient intelligence and unselfish leadership. Some, in truth, it got from black men who had given their heart's blood to make Reconstruction go, from white men who sacrificed everything to teach and guide Negroes. But for the most part, their leaders were colored men of limited education with the current honesty of the times and little experience, and northern and southern whites who varied from conventional and indifferent office holders to demagogues, thieves, and scoundrels. The next step would have been under law and order, gradually to have replaced the wrong leaders by a better and better sort. The Negro, This the Negroes and many whites sought to do from 1870 to 1876, but they failed because the military dictatorship behind labor did not function successfully in the face of the Ku Klux Klan, and especially because the appeal of property in the South got the ear of property in the North. Now, After, let's, let's yeah. reread these, that sentence and especially emphasis on that second half. Got it. But they failed because the military dictatorship behind labor did not function successfully in the face of the Ku Klux Klan, and especially because the appeal of property in the South got the ear of property in the North. All right. Keep, keep that bookmarked in your brains for the rest of eternity, folks. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. After the war, industry in the North found itself with vast organization for production, new supplies of raw material, a growing transportation system on land and water, and a new technological knowledge, technical knowledge of process. All this with the exclusion of foreign competition through a system of import taxes and a vast immigration of laborers tremendously stimulated the production of goods and available services. But to whom were the new goods and the increased services to belong? And in whose hands would lie the power which the uh, that ownership gave? An almost unprecedented scramble for this new power, new wealth, and new income ensued. It broke down old standards of wealth distribution, old standards of thrift and honesty. It led to the anarchy of thieves, grafters, and highwaymen. It threatened the orderly process of production as well as government and morals. The government's federal, state, and local had paid three-fifths of the cost of the railroads and handed them over to the individuals and corporations to use for their profit. Hmm. Mm-hmm. An empire of rich land larger than France, Belgium, and Holland together had been snatched from the hands of prospective peasant farmers and given to investors and land speculators. All of the national treasure of coal, oil, copper, gold, and iron had been given away for a song to be made the monopolized basis of private fortunes, with perpetual power to tax labor for the right to live and work. With perpetual... Speculation rose and flourished on the hard foundation of this largesse. Senator George Hoare said, with the great railroad of the world binding together the continent and uniting the two great seas which wash our shores was finished, I have seen our national triumph and exultation turn to bitterness and shame by the unanimous reports of three committees of Congress that every step of the mighty enterprise has been taken in fraud. 
William N. Tweed became New York State Senator in 1868, and his candidate for governor and mayor were swept into office that year. Tweed became director in a number of great corporations and regularly bribed the legislature. Graft crept into all city business. He he and his partner stole something like $75 million. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Just adjust that for today money. Oh, Just my God. Think please about no. that. Public opinion was silenced. Real estate owners, merchants, and the property class were afraid to complain lest they be highly assessed and taxed. Offices were sold and men nominated for what they could pay. Directors of corporations plotted and nominated judges. Men were sent to the United States Senate because they were lawyers for railroad and mining companies and banks. Congressional leaders were on the payrolls of the corporations. Great lawyers hired their services to rascals who were stealing, and such persons included distinguished names like David Dudley Field, who were nearly expelled from the Bar Association because of his identification with Fisk and Gould at a salary of 125000 Editors of publication received stocks and bonds and railroad passes for publicity. Appointment to cadet ships at West Point was on sale and federal offices given in return for contributions to campaign funds. The whole civil service became filled with men who were incompetent and used to paying political debt. It was common for members of Congress to take stocks and bonds and railroads and other companies when they were in a position to favor these companies by voting for certain laws. A Western governor was impeached for embezzlement. The president of the United States and his family received gifts and loans from financiers. How many times in this book have we talked about the more things change, the more they stay the same? That you could this, change the names in this and none of this would be surprising today. Yeah, no, this is this is just run of the mill lobbying and of course there's constant falling up, right? You fall out of being a millionaire or a business tycoon or or whatever into a government office and then you fall out of there into lobbying. You yeah. make your way up the the ranks in the CIA and the military and then you fall out into to weapons lobbying and then while you're doing weapons lobbying your surprise guest experts on cable news and then you you know fall into cable news and your brother becomes you know mayor of of new york or i'm sorry governor of new york oops. and <laughs> oops um you know i mean it's the same shit it's it's constantly the same shit right and every every one of these prominent people you know from somewhere too actually that's kind of a funny thing with the current events is it's just a reminder even people that are famous in, in music and, and stuff like that basically anyone anyone rich ever even when it seems fairly organic other than a few surprise cases that is not an athlete comes out of somewhere somewhere rich and so of course you know uh someone who is daughter of uh, one of Batista's former bodyguards, Gloria Stefan, was was very you know out and, and talkative, along with some other celebrities, uh, in in support of these regime change efforts in Cuba. And it's like, who was your dad? Oh yeah, yeah. This this whole whole system and country is built on falling up, and the political landscape, being a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, is deeply entwined in that same system. I'm looking at you, Pipple. I'm looking at you. <laughs> Mr. Global North. <laughs> Mr. Global Proletariat. Woo! Uh, David, you want to take over? Yeah. Consolidation of railway systems began with fighting, stealing, and cheating. The New York Central was financed. The Erie went through an extraordinary series of manipulations in which millions were spent, judges were bought, and members of the legislature were bribed. The new method of stock watering came into use by which actual invested capital was doubled and trebled in... Treb- Is that supposed to be tripled? No, I think trebled. I think it works. I think it's probably an old-timey use of the word. 
Okay. Okay. I trust the harbor man. I just, I've never, I, I have to trouble. I'm going to assume it's the same as triple. Doubled and trebled in face value by issuing stock. And the public was compelled to pay fabulous interest on fictitious investments. That's exciting for the public. See, now they do the same thing there still, too. It's just through sports stadiums. Uh, (laughs) When the annals of this republic show the disgrace and censure of a vice president, a late speaker of the House of Representatives, marketing his rulings as presiding officer, three senators profiting secretly by their votes as lawmakers... Five chairmen of leading committees and of late House of Representatives exposed in jobbery, a late Secretary of Treasury forcing balances in the public accounts, a late Attorney General misappropriating public funds, a Secretary of the Navy enriched or enriching friends by percentages levied off the profits of contracts with his departments, an ambassador to England censored in dishonorable speculation, the president's private secretary barely escaping conviction upon trial for guilty complicity and frauds upon the revenue. A secretary of war impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. The demonstration is complete. And again, we just talked about the more things change, the more they stay the same. Obviously, the most glaring examples of this come from the Trump administration. But, you know, every administration has these kinds of people, right? That oh, really yeah. should be are facing conviction or should be convicted of something and, and just go right in and right back out anyway. All this was not simply the corruption of the Republican Party, as some writers insist. It ran across all lines of party and geography. It embraced all sections, classes, and races. It was the disgrace of the whole nation. The slime of this era of theft and corruption, which engulfed the nation, did not pass by the South. Legislatures and public officials were bribed. Black men and white men were eager to get rich. In every southern state, white members of the old planting aristocracy were part and parcel of the new thieving and grafting. But the South did not lay the blame of all this on war and poverty and weak human nature or on the wretched example of the whole nation. Nope. After first blaming greedy and vengeful northerners and then holding up to public execration those southerners who accepted Negro suffrage, the South finally, with almost complete unity, named the Negro as the main cause of southern corruption. They said and reiterated this charge until it became history, that the cause of dishonesty during Reconstruction was the fact that 4 million disenfranchised black laborers, after 250 years of exploitation, had been given a legal right to have some voice in their own government, in the kinds of goods they would make, and the sort of work they would do, and the distribution of wealth in which they created. Now, I do want to put a little pin in that, too, because we talked about corruption and how it's always these other countries, and it's always these other countries. And now it's the black people in the South doing it. And so when you talk about corruption and always comes to mind a global South country, you know, especially a poor global South country, especially in, in Africa, that's that's a big narrative for African governments is corruption, right? Yep. And then here you have the black people blamed for it. It's a little obvious that the charges of corruption in government are a very, very, very loud dog whistle of racism. Right, of how dare black people have any power or any say over anything. 100%. Throughout the North, reaction followed, direct, directed mainly at two impossible goals. First, to reestablish old standards of honesty in a new field. Property was taking new forms and called for a new morality, not a reestablishment of the old. Secondly, an attempt was made to curb production by breaking down tariff walls, the monopoly of raw materials and the privileges of special laws and exclusive techniques. But this was also difficult, if not impossible, so long as the rewards of monopoly and privilege were so spectacular and the powers bestowed so tremendous. 
Thus, the old dictatorship carried on by property interests failed, while all the same time, a new super dictatorship arose. Oh, no. Super dictatorship. (laughs) Don't like the super dictatorship. We have to we have to stomp it out with a mega I'll take a super dictatorship now. with the proletariat. Is that optional? I would I would take I'll, we'll take the ultra dictatorship of the proletariat, <laughs> but not a dictatorship of ultras. We just materialists still. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the dictatorship of property, as represented by the wild freebooting from the close of war and the panic, had proven in many minds that free competition in industry was not going to bring proper control and development. Far from turning toward any conception of dictatorship of the proletariat, of surrendering power either into the hands of labor or the trustees of labor, the new plan was to concentrate into a trusteeship of capital a new and far-reaching power which would dominate the government of the United States. This was not a petty bourgeois development following the overthrow of agrarian feudalism in the South. It was, on the contrary, a new feudalism based on monopoly but not monopoly of the agricultural possibilities of the land so much as its wealth in raw material, in copper, iron, oil, and coal, particularly monopoly of the transportation of these commodities on the new public iron roads privately sequestered, and finally, of manufacture of goods by new machines and privileged technique. This new feudalism was destined to crush the small capitalist as ruthlessly as it controlled labor, and even before the Panic of 1873, it was beginning to consolidate its power. This is... This feels like a weird... I, I know this this chapter is bringing a lot of little like pins and thoughts, but it's a, it's a content-rich chapter for political discussion, right? This is kind of the... The, the theory rich part of it yeah this is very this is very theory rich yeah um so it's weird to say this while obviously the united states expanded out west and then turned out to imperialism and they are still expanding out west and genociding and and ethnically cleansing indigenous people i mean not that they're not still doing that to this day but i mean like this total westward expansion version yeah, of that yeah, right yeah. that that it, so it feels weird to say that they turned towards the South to do this while they were still expanding West. And we know that Western expansion came before the other forms of, of imperialism. But it is weird to see the parallels of what capital did in the South after the war that's being talked about here and the parallels of property and the parallels of the consolidation of, of the Southern planter power with what happens under imperialism. Right, you take the old ruling class of, of someone who has their interest in maintaining the ruling class, and you make that subservient to capital and lording over the masses for the interests of of capital that doesn't yeah. belong in the area. And so, in spite of again the westward expansion was still happening, and the whole United States as a settler colony that needs to be abolished, you can kind of look at this and see the South as the first stake of U.S. imperialism rather than, you know, Mexico or Cuba or whatever. Yeah. Which is is a really weird thing to think, but, I mean, the parallels are just alarmingly strong. Yeah. The copper of Michigan, the coal, steel, and oil of Pennsylvania came under control, and at the same time, the bankers and financiers began to bend the manufacturers and the railroads to their will by their monopoly of investment capital and direction of its distribution, which they concerned by guaranteeing income to small investors. We're back at imperialism. Mm-hmm. It's here. Um, when was this book written? Did we ever determine when this book was written? Uh, it was definitely early 20th century. I think we decided it was like 1920 or 1930 or something yeah. like that. So it was after Lenin wrote imperialism. Yes. Definitely. Okay. That's just it's interesting that these are going to be running on very similar themes and very close. In, and and in this time. was definitely the part after the voice. This is happening. He's talking about dictator Polish 
proletariat. It was after Du Bois had, had become a communist. Um, so he definitely would have read Lenin, but he's, I think he's just straight up historically looking at the situation here. It's just, it's, it's just weird how yeah. it's, it's the same observations. Of 1935, 1935, by the way. So again, about 17, okay. about, about 20 years or so after Lenin wrote Imperialism. Yeah, Imperialism was written in 1916. Okay. So, so yeah, there you go. Just about 20 years. Uh, the, the small investors. Great corporations, though their control of new capital began to establish a super government. We're back to super things. Uh, oh, on no. the one hand, they crushed the robber barons, the thieves, and the grafters, and thus appeased those of the old school who demanded the old standards of personal honesty. Secondly, they made treaty with the petty bourgeoisie by guaranteeing them responsible and certain income from their investments, while they gradually deprived them of real control in industry. And finally, they made treaty with labor by dealing with it as a powerful, determined unit and dividing it up into skilled union labor, which the new industry shared profit in the shape of higher wage and other privileges, and a great reservoir of common and foreign labor, which it kept to work at low wages with the threat of starvation and with police control. This control of super capital and big business was being developed during the 10 years of Southern Reconstruction and was dependent and consequent upon the failure of democracy in the South, just as it fattened upon the perversion of democracy in the North. And when once the control of industry by big business was certain through consolidation and manipulation, that included both North and South, big business shamelessly deserted not only the Negro, but the cause of democracy, not only in the South, but in the North. To the leaders of the Republican Revolt of 1872, big business offered law and order, greater efficiency to of the businessman in politics, and security of salaries and investment. To the insurgent West, it offered combinations which would give lower railway rates, railway rates, wider and better markets, and rising land values. To the South, it offered the withdrawal of the National Army and the res- restoration of political control to property. Before this dominant power, the meaning of the party designations faded. When the old Democratic Party secured a majority in Congress in 1874, the majority sat under the dictatorship of big business. When the Republicans were seated in 1876, the empire of industry was completed. To the student of government who fastens his attention chiefly on the politics, the years of 1866 to 1876 were years when the power of the national government remained exclusively democratic with ultimate control in the hands of the mass of citizens who had the right to vote. But the student who realizes that human activity is chiefly exercised in earning a living and thus particularly in the present industrial age, the actions of groups and governments have to do mainly with income. The student will see that the Civil War brought anarchy in this basic economic activities, which were gradually hammered and forced into a new and vast monarchy of tremendous power and almost miraculous accomplishment. That feels very Marxist right there. Yes, <laughs> and, that is and, incredibly Marxist right there. Yes, uh, it's also brilliantly put and it, it lays a foundation for what we see today where we talk about, you know, there's two parties, but they're one party. Yeah. It's a dog and pony show, right? Yeah. And he's saying that formed between the Civil War and 1876. And by the time 1876 rolled around, there was one was party under two names. Yeah, there's 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 petty squabbles, and it hurts to say petty because some of those things are the lives and deaths of thousands of people through things like you know abortions and how quickly they're cutting you know um, medi- Medicare and shit like that or expand Medicare or whatever. But you know the general support of business, the general support of war, the opposition uh, to obviously you know things like universal medical care and and you know abortion rights and things like that. It, 
the, the opposition of protesters, support of police. Those are all bipartisan things, right? Yep. Um, and anything bipartisan, it just means the whole government supports it, which sometimes means, you know, it's just there for humanity, but very rarely, almost completely, definitely, if both parties support it and it needs to be actually mandated and done by a government instead of just naturally being done by the people, it's probably serving the ruling class. It's probably serving the bourgeoisie. Almost always, which you see with, Almost again, always. Which in this case, the, the railroad... Bipartisan con- things are the worst things. <laughs> the railroad construction... Again, this, this yeah. concept that three quarters of all that railroad construction was paid for by the public... And yet yeah. all the profits were privatized. Every mm-hmm. bit of the profits of it were privatized and became the foundation of empires, of of these mm-hmm. tycoons, of these people that would then have that generational wealth that is still transcendent to this day. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely just insane how much um, the, the actions taken during this period set the foundation for everything we've come to know in America since. Mm-hmm. And that being said, that is where we are going to end it for this week. Uh, I know we're not going as long as we norm as as we have you know in in certain no, chapters, but, but we're going to get through in the it. Day, we'd have five and seven page days of this book. Exactly, and we've gone we've gone really quickly. We had a pretty rich current events, and that was that was a theory dense chapter and a really really good spot to stop it. Yeah, and we got. We got almost five pages in. We got almost five pages in. We will do better next time. I promise. Um, (laughs) That being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us. Uh, If you wanted to reach out to us on email, our email is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. If you wanted to get a hold of us on Twitter, we're on Twitter at marksmadnesspod. And if you wanted to join a community of people that are like-minded, most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, is you, uh, and also want to talk about other things like Final Fantasy XIV and some uh, other other exciting developments in the world that aren't Final Fantasy XIV, you could join our Discord server. And our Discord server is linked in our Twitter bio. Uh, it is the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. Dumb and Awful are still regular participants in it. If you're confused by the switchover, um, it is just a good time and a good place for comrades to, to hang out and talk uh vent or or just share day-to-day banality which sometimes we need we just need a community of people that you know you can vent to so they are there for that and we are they're a fantastic community of people i'm so proud to be a part of it um that being said david disclaimer time it is disclaimer time so um you know i mean something that we always talk about we do this is me and nathan just sat down one day and we're going to recapital right and that's something you read in a group. That's something where you want to have back and forth. You want to talk about context, have conversation with what the theory means, what it means today, what it means to you. And since there were just two of us, and that was an awfully small reading group, um, we decided to record it. And just in case it kept going, we decided, hey, we'll see if, uh, if we can make a podcast out of it. And lo and behold, here we are. Uh, and so the purpose of the podcast since the beginning is hopefully you're out there organizing in a group um, and, and doing something with on-the-ground action because God knows – you know, we need it out there, right? Um, we need people to organize. We need people to drive people into socialism. We need to support uh, those, especially with the, the rising rate of houselessness and homelessness uh, at the moment. Um, and, you know, with the eviction moratorium coming up, that that's going to explode. Um, you know, with the issues of police brutality in the United States, with all of these things, you know, we need people out there organizing. So hopefully you're out there on the ground organizing. And whatever group you're organizing with, um, hopefully their reading group is doing these works. And we can be another voice uh, for the reading group of the political education with you. We can be another part of that group to add more context, add more input. Uh, save for that. Save, you know, your 
groups reading shorter works or something more applicable to what you're organizing around. And you're just reading this on their own, on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group. Um, and so we can give you the context. We can give you that conversational input for it and tie it back to today. And say for that, say if it's either a book like this where we're kind of an enhanced ebook or there's a book where we kind of summarize the work, whatever it is we can do to make these works more accessible to you. Cause we want to get that theory out there guiding your actions because without the theory guiding your actions, uh, you could be doing nothing or what you're doing could just be charity, could not have the right or any end goal. Um, but with the theory guiding your actions, they turn into praxis and they actually apply and drive the politics that we need to see in the world to drive this revolution. And of course, without the praxis, there's no point to the theory. Uh, they go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, once again, this is Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.